Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Roger Webb. As I was considering what to, to speak on today, um, this ver- I had various thoughts in mind. As a matter of fact, at my place at the table, at the dinner table, I have several notes written on some pieces of paper as to what I might uh, uh, speak about, but I didn't uh, choose to develop that. What I thought to do was to give you what I felt to be the single most important exhortation that any of us would receive, and that would be to grow in the Lord. In the book of Colossians, Paul had never visited the city of Colossae. He had heard about them, heard about their faith. The the church was founded by some other people. uh, But he prays for them. And in verses 9 and 10, he says that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And when you begin to, to take apart this statement, you see a pattern developing. He says, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This was His heart's desire for these people. He had never met them, but it was His heart's desire that they grow. And you begin to see a pattern in this. He wants them to be filled with what? Knowledge. The basis for any growth in Christ starts with knowledge, with information, with true facts about the person and work of God. Where do we get them? Primarily from the Word of God. But we take those facts, those bits of information, that knowledge, and we develop it to be able to use that knowledge and develop it in wisdom. The application of information is wisdom. And then as you grow in wisdom, in applying the truths that you know, you develop an understanding of what in the world God is doing. But you know, just knowledge, although it is important, is insufficient. Because you have to walk worthy. We have to start applying the things that we know. We have to to change what we do in our life. One of the... Is one of the 
most important principles in any particular, in, really in, in all of life, is growth requires change. Now, all change is not necessarily growth, but growth requires change. If we're the same person we were six months ago, or a year ago, we have the same attitudes, we have the same habits, we have the same patterns, we're not growing. We're not growing in the Lord. We have to change the things that we do. And that change in our walk, when we walk worthy of the Lord, previously we were not walking as worthily as before, as now, now we are walking worthy of the Lord. And what does that do? Unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And how does it end up? Increasing in the full knowledge of God. And it ends up being a spiral staircase. We gain a little bit of knowledge, we apply it, we start to live it, and we gain, through experience, more knowledge of God. And so we've made that complete circle, but we're one, one step higher. And then we make another complete circle, and we're another step higher, and another complete circle, another step higher, and on and on and on it goes. One of the things I like about uh, Colossians 1, 9 and 10 is is how it ties very nicely with uh, Joshua 1.9. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. What? Where do, what? What's the whole purpose of that? Getting information in. Why? That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. So we can obey, we can follow what the Word of God says, right? For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. When we know information, when we apply the information, then we can follow it, and the Lord makes us successful, then the Lord makes us prosperous. And by the way, God is the one that defines prosperity, and success. But what Paul is saying to these Colossians, he's saying to us that he wants them to know what God wants them to do so they can do it and they can please him and grow in the knowledge of God. Now it's every pastor's concern every pastor's heart burden that some in this congregation only know about the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. They don't know Him personally. They've never taken that step of gaining information and applying it day after day. And that's a continuous process. It's also a burden for every pastor's heart when he sees people start to grow and then become stunted. 
They come to a point and never seem to progress beyond that certain point. Because every pastor wants every individual in the church growing, rejoicing in the Lord, gaining that experiential knowledge of Him. Because that's what God wants. That's exactly why God created us. To, to, give, to create intelligent individuals who can, at least to a certain point, know Him and freely love Him. That's why He's given us intelligence, He's given us emotions, and He's given us Volition. He's given us the ability to choose. He wants us to love Him enough to grow in Him. It's just like, very, I should say it's similar to your relationship with your spouse. Do you want to grow closer to your spouse? Well, I sincerely hope so. Well, what does it take? Spending time with them. But you can't spend every waking moment with them. You get hungry after a while, right? You, you know, oh, we'll live on love. Well, that works for maybe the first uh, few weeks of the honeymoon, but then after, after that... Uh, uh, you know, like Joni said, she knew the honeymoon was over when she uh, went to the laundromat and had to do the dirty clothes. <laughs> that, that's life, right? We have everyday activities to do, but our spouse is never that far out of our mind. Sometimes we think our spouse might be out of, our mi- out of their mind, but that's... <laughs> Something else again. So what does, this, what does this all mean? It means that we need, as pastors, if we're going to see people grow, we're going to need to supply information, knowledge, specifics of the Word of God to people's lives so that they can learn and then begin to apply. Now, I, I wish, as a pastor, I wish that there was a switch or a program, first of all, I wish it for myself, that would automatically make me do what I know to do. Unfortunately, the Lord did provide me with a will. I should say fortunately and unfortunately because unfortunately I don't always do what I know to do. And I think that's just about everybody's experience here. But it starts off with knowledge. And so what this message really is is the first in a real, really a series of messages dealing with uh, practical theology. What 
is important in, in our lives. Now, generally speaking, uh, when you think about uh, theology, most people's thoughts about theology are large, dusty volumes with small print of usually unintelligible text. But in reality, every single one of us has a theology. Every single one of us has a certain amount of understanding and of the universe. We call it a worldview. And whether we've thought our worldview or not, you know, we've, whether we've thought it through or not, whether we've systematized it or not, it's still there because we react to various circumstances and situations in our lives. And we're going to react with what, to those circumstances based on what we know and truly believe. And the theology part is a small, albeit should be extremely significant, part of that worldview. A lot of people haven't thought their worldview through. A lot of people have. But as we're going to find out, that theology is, has to be center and focus of all things. Years and years and years and, and years and years ago, Theology was called the queen of the sciences. Theology, once it was established that God exists, like Paul's nieces has come to that point of realization, now defining that God and his capabilities becomes a theological issue. A theological issue that has ramifications in every other aspect of life. And that's what I want to deliver. I want to share what has to be at our core, our foundation, the very basis of that worldview and of that theology. The fact that God is that he is great and magnificent and powerful and that he must be center and focus of all things. And the Bible calls this the fear of God. In order to properly understand the created universe, you must know that he is creator that he personally created all things for his own purpose and for his own glory. And that he sustains all that he created moment by moment. In order to properly understand history, you must understand that God is the sovereign Lord God and that everything that happens 
was decreed in eternity past to happen. And that God is great enough to use individuals capable of, of freedom of choice to accomplish His decreed will. In fact, every discipline of learning must have at its core the Lord God is center. The Lord God is, you might say, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. He is everything. He is center. He is focus. He is goal. Every discipline must have that issue settled at its core or it is doomed to misunderstand and misinterpret whatever field it's trying to understand. So, what is the fear of God? What exactly is it? Now, now, I'm, we're going to turn to uh, Job 42, but really uh, what we're going to end up heading towards is uh, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But before we really begin to, to, to develop this, we have to, dis, we have to define what is the fear of God. And I think the best way to define it is by looking at an example in Job chapter 42. Now, when we get into Job, the whole book of Job needs to be considered first, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, developing the book of Job. I'm sure you're f fairly familiar with it anyway. Job was a very godly man. I mean, anybody that God is going to brag on is a godly man. <clears throat> Excuse me. But the operative word there is man. He was a human. And as godly and as wonderful and as lovely a person as Job was, he was still a sinner saved by grace. And he still had more to learn, more to grow. And the Lord allowed Satan to attack him. As a matter of fact, it sure appears like uh, the Lord sort of set Job up for this and goaded Satan into doing it. And Job lost everything. Uh, all, all the possessions, all the, all the material wealth, all the respect of people. Even his own wife kicked him in his teeth. But that put Job in a dilemma. On top of all the rest of that, his three friends, quote-unquote friends, came and told him, what a horrible person he must be for God to do this to him. Because, obviously, God blesses holy people 
And God necessarily curses unholy people, right? That was their theology. That was what they believed. And Job's problem was he believed it too. And he couldn't reconcile the fact that what he did while he was being blessed of the Lord did not change. He didn't sin any overt sin. He didn't change any of his habits. And now all of a sudden he's receiving all this negative stuff from the Lord. And so his friends come and kick him in the teeth and tell him how wicked and miserable and rotten he is. And he's trying to defend himself from them. I didn't do anything wrong. Even to the point, from time to time, of calling God's goodness, God's mercy, and even God's justice into question. To the point where he say, Oh, that I could speak to him myself. Well, Starting in chapter 38, God steps into the picture and begins to quiz Job about the circumstance, about what he does. And of course, Job had no answers whatsoever. And as God questioned Job, he couldn't answer the least of the questions. And he began to realize, hey, God is, like Pastor has said, God is working on many planes. We can't even begin to fathom everything that God is doing. And then, when we get into chapter 42, we'll read the text. It says, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Okay. Look at verse 3. You asked, Who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Hold your place here and turn back to chapter 38, verse 2. And in chapter 38, verse 2, this is the Lord again speaking. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words, without knowledge? God, in chapter 38, verse 2, is talking to Job. And he, he says, who are you to begin to call me into question? In chapter 42... Job is quoting what God said. Skip down to uh, verse 4. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Turn to page or chapter 40, and verse 7. Back up to verse 6. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Again, 
Job is now quoting what God is saying. Now get this. After all this questioning that God has been pouring down on Job's head, and Job stood there and said, um, uh, and finally he just went, because he realized what God said was right. And that's what verses 3 and 4 are all about. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. This is Job's confession. You're right, God, and I'm wrong. Verse 4, you said, listen now, I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me. What is Job's, what is Job's response to God's questioning? Verses 5 and 6. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now here is this godly man. A man who knew the Lord. The man, a man who loved the Lord. A man who did everything in his life that he knew was pleasing to God. The Lord allowed these circumstances to come in and any of us would have been exceedingly, in his place, would have been exceedingly frustrated, angry, confused. And he spoke out of that emotional situation. When God confronted him, God gave him a little bit more knowledge. Job had a certain amount of knowledge, right? He had followed that knowledge around the spiral staircase, had come to a certain level of experience, but he needed to take one further step. He needed to understand better who God was and who he was. And his response to that knowledge is what you said about me is right. I am utterly wrong. This is the foundation stone of the fear of God. It is a knowledge of who God is and who I am. And it results in the minimizing of ourselves in our own sight and the maximizing of God in our sight. We all, every single one of us, have far too high an estimation of ourselves. <clears throat> if we could once gain God's perspective on us, this is what Job gained. If we could once gain God's perspective on us, we would begin to see compared to God, how insignificant we are. We have a very bad habit of comparing ourselves with somebody else. 
And inevitably, we will pick one or two things that we are superior to somebody else and boast of that superiority in our own mind. But who's our comparison? Who is our ultimate comparison? It's not the guy down the street. It's the Lord God of heaven. And when Job... Notice what, again, notice what Job says. In verse 5, My ears had heard of you. I had a certain amount of knowledge of you. But now... My eyes have seen you. I have a greater amount of knowledge of you. I'm beginning to get your perspective of, of me, your perspective of me. I'm beginning to understand it. I'm beginning to understand compared to you, I'm nothing. How many have seen that picture of uh, the Milky Way galaxy with the the arrow pointed to one of the edges and it says, you are here. Well, that's, the Milky Way galaxy is, is fairly large, right? But compare that to the known universe. And the Hubble Space Telescope is seeing objects that are estimated to be in the 200 billion light year range away from Earth. And God comprehends the whole. He is bigger than the universe because He created the universe. And you are this tiny little speck on a tiny little speck, float, circling a tiny little speck, in a tiny little corner of a rather moderate galaxy, actually a small galaxy, floating around in the, in the world. And the God who has called you to himself comprehends the whole. Once we get a good view of God, we can begin to see who we really are. Now, there's going to be a balance to this. And actually, the balance is the next, in the next message, talking about the love for God and the love of God. But this is the foundation stone, the fear of God. If I were to... To define the fear of God in my own terms, I would say that it is the natural reaction to the honest realization of who and what God is and who and what I am. And it goes way beyond mere reverential awe. Again, the, the words that are used in both Greek and Hebrew mean a trembling fear. The Greek word is phobos, which is 
where we get our word phobia from. It is a trembling fear. And like I, like I mentioned, if we were walking along in the woods one day and we saw this cute little bear cub walking along and we heard this growl coming from behind us and we turn around and saw that it's the mama bear, would we be rather scared? Because she doesn't like it when somebody else comes between her and her cub. Is God greater than Mama Bear? Yes. And this is the God with whom we have to do. <clears throat> this is the initial reaction that we must have before God. Real trembling fear of the power, magnificence, and sovereign majesty of God. Fear that would make us crumble into a corner and hide. And if you wonder about that, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his, and his uh, train filled the temple. And he saw the seraphim. And what was his response? Oh, hi, God. No. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What was the first thing he realized? Just how insignificant, how, how devastated he was. And then he felt how sinful he was. And how sinful his people were. And again, he was a godly man. How about Moses? When he went up on the mount... He exceedingly feared and quaked. How about John on the Isle of Patmos? John the Beloved who laid his head on Jesus' breast. Fell at his feet as one dead. If God were to reveal his awesome glory to us, every single one of us, would not have strength left. That's the fear of God. And once we begin to have that, and again, there are various levels of that knowledge and understanding. Somebody who just realized, hey, yeah, God really does exist, won't have that knowledge like somebody well-experienced and walking with the Lord and has really personally known through experience that God. But that knowledge, at least at a certain level, must exist. When it does... We can ask the question, well, what does this fear of God do for us? Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to look at several verses in the book of Proverbs rather quickly to find out what does this do? Proverbs. <clears throat> 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The very first thing that must happen in order for anybody to begin to be able to take the facts and the information about the universe and put it and arrange it properly is they have to have God in the right spot. And we're talking about, when we're talking about knowledge, we're talking about real facts, real science, real history, real knowledge about us as humans and the world around us. This is knowledge. In 1 Timothy 6.20, Paul warns Timothy to avoid pseudoscience, false knowledge. And there's been various brands of false knowledge throughout history. During the Middle Ages, superstition and irrational fear of the supernatural dominated science. And the idea that everything was controlled by various spirits that couldn't be controlled led to, to a view of life that was very helter-skelter, very here, there, and everywhere. But then you had men who, like Sir Francis Bacon, who understood that we have a God who sustains all things, that is a reliable God. And if He sustains all things and He's reliable, then He reliably controls everything that He made, and therefore we can observe science, we can observe a phenomenon today, and then we can run the same experiment tomorrow, and it's going to come up with the same results. And we can begin to take and generalize those ideas and call them theories. And we can begin to put these theories together and put them into practice and call it technology. And we can understand how things work because God is reliable. God supports this universe the same way t tomorrow as he does today as he did years ago. At least all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter 1 verse 30 when God uh, finished his works which he was creating and making. I won't go any further with that. Other than to say this, God used different processes to bring the world into being and then he uses to sustain them. And that's all the further I'm going to say. But think about this. If the universe is the result of random chance processes then why do we have any basis for believing that the 
the experiments that we do today will work the same way tomorrow. If everything's random, it might work differently tomorrow. But God, who supports all things, supports them the same way today and tomorrow and the next day. And so real science is the foundation of it. Real science is born out of the understanding of the true God, of who He is and how He supports the world. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Not only is the fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge, but it's also the beginning of wisdom. Verse, chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of God also forms the basis for all wisdom. That is the real application of the knowledge that we've gained by observation. When we begin to put things together, they make sense. When we have as a foundation the regular working of God, we can, as we said, we can begin to apply that knowledge and understand that it's going to be the same tomorrow as it was today, as it was years ago. Therefore, we can take that knowledge and apply it. We have in the sciences a very strange dichotomy. Disciplines, scientific disciplines that are based on observation and experimental repeatability, real science, have made tremendous strides. Chemistry, physics, mathematics, medicine, all these areas have taken the facts about how things work, things that we can observe. And have done marvelous things. I just read in an aviation magazine. Um, they are now taking, uh, just, just an example, they are now taking what they call centered metal. Uh, it's computer controlled. And all the computer does is have a, a, a program in it that define a 3D model of some particular component. And they, the computer sends its information to the machine. The machine develops this thing, whatever it is. And, you know, it's sort of like the, on Star Trek, when they have the replicators, you, they tell the computer, you know, make me a cup of coffee, and a cup of coffee comes out. And... It's sort of the same thing. Only a number of years ago, these were just patterns that they, they would make 
uh, and then they would build the real thing. The machinist would build the real thing from this pattern. Now they're actually taking and making structural components to put on aircraft out of this centered material. Based on a 3D computer drawing of whatever that piece is. I mean, you, you, you close the door, you tell the computer what to do, and a few minutes later you open the door and there this, this piece is. That's technology. That is the application of known facts to a specific task, and that we've done tremendous things with it. But, and, and I, I always go back to the Tower of Babel when I think of that, because what did the Lord say? I know that there is nothing that he can dream of that he can't do. Because God created these minds. And every technological advance that we see that is a testimony to the greatness of what God has done to these in making this computer upstairs. But you compare that with the tremendous strides and advances in real technology, real knowledge, with disciplines that have to do with the humanities, with psychology. How many different personality theories exist in psychology? 150, 200 different things. Why? Because the humanities are, are largely based on an idea that we've evolved from lower order of beings. Again, real wisdom opens up the practical application of the knowledge of God. And what is the practical application of the knowledge of God? True religion. Really following what we know about to be true about God. Learning more of Him and fulfilling in our lives what we ha he had from eternity past decreed. And there's nothing more blessed than that. There's nothing more blessed in life than to hear somebody say to you after, after you've ministered to them in some way. You witness to them, you talk to them about the Lord. You don't know how much of a blessing it was for me to hear. There's nothing more blessed than to hear somebody advance in their Christian life and in their walk with God because of what God led you to do. Nothing that is greater than that. Why? Because everything that we have in this world, as Pastor has been talking about, all that technology, all that knowledge is someday going to burn up. 
but somebody walking with the Lord today because of how we ministered to them, that's going to last for eternity. Turn back with me to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. Not only is the fear of God the basis for all knowledge, the proper basis for all knowledge, not only is it the basis for wisdom and understanding the application of that knowledge, but in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13, it says... That to fear the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. God says he hates. The fear of the Lord is the only adequate basis for morality. As you read through the opening chapters of Proverbs, you're met with the fact that real knowledge and wisdom reveal themselves in godly morality. The knowledge of the true God and His character gives you something upon which to build morality. If God didn't exist and morality was based on what you think is right or what he thinks is right or what she thinks is right where do we go who's right there's no one that can say that particular behavior is right or wrong if man is nothing but a very complex pile of molecules if life is nothing more than electro electrochemical stimuli in the brain if we're no more than fortuitous accidents, if there's no consequences for any act that we do here on life, in this life, once we're dead, we're dead and that's it, then what's wrong with murder? Jeffrey Dahmer didn't think it was bad. He specifically said, because... because uh, we're all just nothing but animals. There, he felt no reason to keep his activities within any limits of morality. And how many, how many people did he kill and eat? If somebody doesn't suit my needs, get rid of them. Abortion, sui assisted suicide, genocide. If somebody doesn't suit my needs, get rid of them. Who's to tell me I'm wrong? If the chief end of man is to enjoy life, then if somebody is preventing me from enjoying my life, then get rid of them. If somebody enjoys homosexuality, let them. If that's the chief end to enjoy life, let them be a homosexual. If they enjoy it. If somebody wants to be a pedophile, let them. 
If somebody wants to be a drug addict, let them. There's no right or wrong unless God says, this is right and that is wrong. Proverbs 16, 6, By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. God stands as the moral standard. He says, this is right. This activity is right. This activity is wrong. And therefore, we can say, this activity is right. And this activity is wrong. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Finally, and I'm only going to mention this as a sort of a teaser for the next part of the message, the fear of, the, of God alone keeps... Well, let's back up. The fear of the Lord is the only basis on which the love of God can be successfully developed. Now, we've been talking a lot about the fear of God, but there's love for Him as well. But the fear of God alone keeps this sinful, greedy heart from seeking to take advantage of the great goodness and love of God. And we'll talk more about that the next time. Lessons for our lives. The basis for all knowledge must be God. Knowing He exists, that He is creator and sustainer of everything, puts everything that we observe in this universe in proper perspective. It's sort of like a giant jigsaw puzzle with one key piece. If you don't have that key piece, you can't put anything else together right. You can have this sort of piece over here. It's sort of like, try to. how would you like to put a jigsaw puzzle together that was pure white? No picture on it at all. That would be like, trying to put this universe together with knowledge but without any guidance, without the knowledge of the true God. You don't know where any other piece fits in the whole until you have God in the proper spot. Number two. Whoever does not hold to the above standard, no matter how educated or knowledgeable about the facts of the universe, they do not rightly understand the universe. That's a bold statement. But an individual who has rejected the knowledge of God 
has also rejected that key for understanding how everything fits together. It becomes a list of facts that they might know, but they cannot rightly put them into proper relationship. Remember, facts are never self-evident. They are always interpreted. They are interpreted based on whether we know God or whether we do not know God. When everything boils down, when you begin to to boil everything down, there are the single, the first question that anybody must ask is, does God exist or does God not exist? And where you come up with, and those are the only two possibilities. If you say God exists, then defining that God, like I said, becomes a theological issue. Once you define, does God exist? Or does God not exist? You will, if you come up on this side, God does not exist, then every fact of nature that you see is interpreted one way. If you say God does exist, you can look at the same facts and come up with a completely different interpretation of those facts. Number three, once we know the facts and can place all the facts into a framework so that they relate to each other properly and and back to God, then we gain wisdom. And whether that's in the case of the sciences and technology, taking the knowledge that we know and putting them together right and making things work, or whether it's done in our walk with God. The knowledge of God gives us the basis on which to walk closely with Him. Number four, the fear of God, as we said, is the only basis for morality. Only the Bible believer has a logical basis for saying anything is right or wrong. And number five, beyond that, this is sort of an extension of the previous one, but with the fear of God as the basis of our knowledge, it forever gets rid of the idea God could never cast anybody into hell for those who reject Him. Why? Because if we know how great, if we understand how great, how awesome God is, then we begin to understand how awful sin is and how horrid sin. Have you ever thought about, have you ever tried to picture in your mind the temple and the sacrifice system 
think of the day that Solomon dedicated the temple and slaughtered thousands upon thousands of animals. Think of the gory mess that that was. Why would God want to have such an ugly thing? Because sin's ugly. And death is repulsive. And he wants to show us what just the depths of what God, Jesus, had to do for us. Sin is so horrible that, quite frankly, hell is the only logical alternative for it. The people that say, well, it's not fair. What about somebody who's never heard? Salvation isn't fair. Period. You don't want fair. You don't want justice. Because we'd all be in hell. We want grace. And God is gracious to all those who trust Him. God is gracious to all, really. But he has a special grace for those who have trusted him, who have seen their sin, who have seen just how ugly we really are and has begun to see how beautiful he is.